Today's scripture reading is 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 8 through 14. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you so much, Christina. Well, hello. Good morning. All right. It's great to see you all here. Thank you so much, Camilla, for sharing with us. That was in incredible. Um, yeah, such a good time to hear that. I, I was definitely that kid in class. Uh, I think I broke the r record for number of checks next to my name. I don't know if they do that anymore, but uh, I think they had to switch to like a hangman style where it was like D A V I because uh, you know the chalkboard was was uh, out of space for check marks. But yeah, just God's God's common grace through educators, um, specifically those who who know him and also those who don't, is just a profound thing. So again, thank you. That was that was very encouraging. And uh, yeah, I want to introduce myself to all of you. My name's Dave. I'm the I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Tucson, and I'm glad to see you here and that we get this time together this morning as we close out our time in 2 Samuel, looking at the life of David. Next next week we'll be moving on to Solomon, his son, and uh, I'm glad we get this time together. If you're new uh, or you've not ever heard me preach before, I want to want to let you know I have a stutter. It's um it's it's heightened by my uh, chattering jaw because <laughs> it's freezing, and uh, I did warn us all, myself included, right? Bring a little cardigan or blankie or whatever we need here. I didn't do that, and uh, so anyway. Um, it, it is, we know it's cold, um, and sorry, bring something to, to stay warm, and um, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24, if you have a copy of God's Word with you. If you don't have one with you, or you don't own one, um, and you would like one, will you hold your hand up high and keep it up, and we will get you one. We'd love to put a Bible in uh, everybody's hands. Y en español, si quiere la Biblia y no tiene, por favor, levanta su mano y diga español. Y si no tiene una 
Biblia, uh, eso es un regalo a usted. And so again, this is our gift to you. If you don't own a, a copy of God's Word, please keep this. And we'd love to, uh, to again, for you to grow and be shaped by, by the Bible. What we believe and trust is God's Word that is shaping and profitable, we're told, for every aspect of life. So with that in mind, will you join, join me right now as, as I pray together and, and we again get into our time in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Again, Father, thank you that that you work in in profound ways, um, in seemingly small, mundane ways through, whether we know it or not, sometimes a teacher, educator, custodian, bus driver, um, a neighbor, and uh, and then also in in big ways that maybe we do think of that 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 are way out of the norm. Either way, you are relentless. You are constant in your in your pursuit. C.S. Lewis called you the hound of heaven. Lord, thank you that that is true for us as a church corporately, for us as individuals. So Lord, this morning we, we ask, I believe that you will continue your pursuit of us. Speak into our lives, into our hearts. Lord, for those of us who need to be encouraged, who need to be reminded of the good news of who you are, of your authority and your power, Lord, for those of us who need to be convicted of where we have wandered and strayed and maybe brought you down a couple of notches in our minds and in our hearts, Lord, will you also do a work? Again, open our eyes gently and yet firmly to follow you in all of life. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Why? Why, oh why? That's a question that we don't really even need to be taught, I don't think. That's a word similar to the word no, right? I think it goes hand in hand in many cases. Probably many of us, those of us who have young kids, it's like, where did they learn no? Well, from us. <laughs> but uh, also the, the question or the word or the phrase why just flows off the lips, just kind of rolls off the tongue. It's something that, again, we don't, we don't necessarily need to be taught how to do. Sometimes it comes from a good place, right, asking questions. My mom used to call me. I actually spent quite a bit of time with her over the weekend and was thinking about this. She, she called me Mr. Hypothesis, um, which I didn't know what that word meant and still might not fully. But, that, uh, you know, I just asked a lot of questions. What if this? What if that? And, 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 and sometimes it can be, you know, curiosity can be a way to learn love and, 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 and understanding. Sometimes we don't get an answer to our questions, but it can be still a good thing. Sometimes, though, it can be used as an excuse for disobedience. Because I don't understand, I won't do that. Because it doesn't make sense to me, I'm just going to continue on my own path. And, and I think this passage we're in together this morning is, is pregnant with the question, why? Right? As we approach it, some, some sort of handlebars or a framework for us to walk through is, is, is why does this even happen? As we look at the end of... David's life, if you've been with me, with us for a while here, you've seen we've been walking through this, in some ways, disorienting life of David, a man named, a, a man after God's own heart, but then also sometimes he just, just, just train wrecks his and many other people's 
lives. And so as we wrap this up, why? Why does this happen? Actually, we have a, a framework up here for us. Why does this happen? Why is it bad? And then why the response that we see? So with that in mind, let's, let's enter in together. I'm going to pick up in verse 1 here of chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba to number the people, that I may know the number of the people. So, so why? We, it's good and right to just stop here for a moment and ask, why did this happen? Well, if you're paying attention and we look there, it's like um, God incited David. Is it God's fault? Should we blame God? Like, why did this, this happen? Well, if you're, if you're taking notes or you want to do, so, if you want to dig in further, a, a, a parallel passage to this is First Chronicles chapter 21 is, is, uh, is this same story. And in that passage, it says that Satan incited David. And some of us might be confused by that or probably many of us. Well, is the Bible contradicting itself is that uh, I think the, 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 the posture that we take is that the scriptures are the best way to understand or translate the scriptures. And so when we're confused in one passage or something there, it's best to kind of zoom out and look at the bigger framework. And so uh, similar to other passages in Scripture, specifically Job would be one, as we get the picture all throughout the Bible that God is the author of the story, that, that he's in control of all things. He's sovereign. He's all powerful. And that's not meant to be a mean, like, oh, just kind of just accept it and, and, and move on. But, but the, the reality is that God is in control of all things. And especially as we put these next to each other and we understand, so God allows Satan to tempt David, to, to prompt him in this way. And uh, what we see as we go on there, even in verse 3, his friend, Joe, well, kind of friend, not a great friend, but his, this, this guy, Joab, uh, actually, surprisingly, in this case, tries to talk David out of it. And yet David continues on and he does what he wants to do. So he's tempted. God allows Satan to tempt David, again, similar to what happened in, in Job. And, and, he, and, and David is still accountable for his, his, his choice. And, and um, there's a passage here in Isaiah, chapter 55, that, that um, I just want us to understand. God says in verse, in verse uh, 8 and, and 9 of Isaiah, chapter 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Modern translation, check yourself. <laughs> okay, it, this, is, this is an opportunity for us. And again, some of us might not be comfortable with this. And I just want to say, that's okay. All right, P pastorally, I, I want to love you and love us enough as a church to not try to sugarcoat things and just try to make it, make it sound like it's easy and palatable. 
All right, it's good for us to have to, to come face to face with the reality that God is God and we are not. And actually, the narrator of this, of this section, this last part here in 2 Samuel, is intentionally presenting a holy, set-apart, awesome God. And, and he's not easily understandable. You can't put him, you can't fit him on a b- b- bumper sticker or a coffee mug. And, 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 that's, and that's part of the big idea is that we understand that God is, is big and, and, and he's, he's at work, and that that's uncomfortable for us. Is in in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, if you, you know that, 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 that series, in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, the, the, the character, the Christ figure, um, Aslan, some of you might say Aslan or whatever, there's a, well, anyway, Aslan, the lion figure, is, is, is on the prowl, and one of the young characters hears about Aslan and is in a conversation with a talking beaver. Just go with it, right? It's a kid's book. It's great. But the, he, this, this, this kid says, a lion, is it safe? And the beaver says, safe? No, no. He's good but he's not safe, All right? We need to be reminded, and I think as we continue to walk through this passage of that reality, God is God and we are not. Why does this happen? Part of the answer to it is because God is at work. He's working in a broken world full of sinful people. So David is still accountable. David chooses. Let me just even for a moment remind us if that a very similar story happens, right? The father actually allows Jesus. In fact, in the scriptures, we're told that he is led into the desert to be tempted by Satan. But Jesus doesn't give in to that temptation. Okay, there's a similar story. We see David willfully chooses to disobey, and it is a sin, but, but, it, but um, it's, it's, it's not... Like God's just, you know, a pu- puppet master, but, but he is sovereign. He's over it. He's at work here. And, but so why is it bad, right? If you're uncomfort- uncomfortable, I, I want to, again, encourage you, that's, that's okay. I want to even inv- inv- invite you to press into that. We say here, we take comfort in knowing we're going to be uncomfortable c- together. Some of us about dig different things and if this is uncomfortable, the invitation is press in. If you're a part of an RC a community or, or on the drive home or over lunch, press into this discomfort of God allowing David to be prompted or tempted to sin. And then that same God holding him accountable. All right, so the next question is, why is it even bad? What's the big deal here? Why is he in trouble for counting? Right? We count. Someone might even be right now might be counting. We count. We keep track of the numbers of, so we know where are we at. You know what? As we look for a building one day, we need to know, well, how big can this building be or does it need to be or, you know, things like that. We, we, we keep track. Um, and, and so, right, is, is counting a b- fad thing? Um, well, well let's, let's look at that. In verse 10, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So 
David owns it. He acknowledges it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Well, I'm going to, um, there's a, there's a, there's a two-part answer. There's a general answer that's, again, uncomfortable for us, but, but so important for us to understand. And then there's a specific answer for, in this case, why is it wrong? What did David do and, and why is it wrong? So first, the general answer, why is it wrong? Because God said so. Right? How, how c- comfortable are you or I with, with that? My, my guess is most of us, our first flinch is not very. We might say it with our words, but, but practically, functionally, because God said so, it's not enough. But it's rooted in I, our identity, who we are. Okay, all the way back in the very beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 1, God created us, every one of you, individually, specifically. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows the number of hairs on your head, the number of days of your life and my life. Before we, we, None of us in here knows that. Right? God does. He created us to, 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 to flourish and thrive in our identity, our relationship with him, that who we are and what we do is, is, is under his oversight, under his care. But again, the adversary, that's the word even used there in the Hebrew there, of the adversary tempted us, tempted man first and said, the first pragmatist, right? Some of us don't just accept because God said so, because we're pragmatic, right? I want to know. Well, the first kind of in, in introduction to pragmatism is, is this serpent comes and questions God trust, God's trustworthiness. Well, why? Why can't you eat of that fruit? God said not to eat of it. Okay, we just accept that, right? Like, you're not allowed in Sunday school to ask that question, I assume, right? I wasn't in a lot of Sunday school when I was growing up. Again, go back to, you know, check marks next to my name, whatnot. But, right, you're, 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 uh, you're not allowed to just ask, like, yeah, really, why did God say not to eat of that, that tree? There's not really a good answer to that other than the fact that God said not to. Right? God was creating a people and making it apparent that, that, that we're to flourish under obeying him, under taking our cues from him. And so he gave this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, said don't eat of that tree. And then God's, God's character is questioned. And this, this serpent asks, you know, well, why did he say that? And then they, they see the man and the woman see, oh, this fruit is good to eat. It looks, yeah, you're right. And well, and then as God's character is questioned, they eventually take and eat and their eyes are opened and shame enters in and disunity enters in and brokenness and, and mistrust enters in between humans and, and a broken relationship with our creator and with, with each other and with our, our own selves. Right? There's, there's brokenness enters in. And so what, what actually happens um, is God is demoted from God to advisor. Well, let me just ask that question right now of us. Do you function as though God is on trial in, in your heart, in your life? Do you ask why? Because 
depending on the answer, you're going to decide whether or not to obey. If God is king, then, then the answer is, because you said so is enough. I might not understand, it might not make sense to me, but, but because you are leading, because you're the authority, because you're the king and I'm the subject, I, 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 I will follow, I will obey. But as uh, pastor and author Timothy Keller kind of breaks this passage down and he points out that, that we often um, mistake agreement with obedience. But, but the two are not synonymous. They're, they're not the same. That The agreement is, oh, because I, I understand, why should I do this? Why did, you know, you told my older brother uh, stuck his hand in under a car hood. The, the hood was open, and he almost got three of his fingers cut off, or he partially did and had to get him sewn back to Heather. But from his perspective, right, all the adults were like, don't put your hand under the hood. And he's like a young kid, five or so. And so he, I wasn't the only one in my family getting check marks next to my name, by the way, in the classroom. So he, he sees all these other adults. Not only are they sticking their hands under the hood, they're putting their heads under there, right? Flashlights, they're, you know, messing with things. So he sees, oh, everyone else is doing that. I can do it too. Well, he didn't know about hand belts and serpentine belts and all this stuff. And he just sticks his hand in there, right? He didn't understand why. Many of us just sit there and are like, why, why, why? Until you explain every detail of it to me, God, I'm, I'm not going to obey, but we don't say it like that. We think, oh, until it all makes sense to me, I'll just kind of continue on my own path. Again, is God an advisor in your life? Ask it more personally. Have you or I, God bless you, have you or I demoted God from God to advisor? What, what comes to mind for me in may, many ways um, with this, I, I don't want to go into this too, in too much detail, but um, because of the age and the stage of our church, I get to do a lot of pre-marriage counseling, and, and I, and I, and I sh- share this not because of uh, to shame or to bring anything up, but it's just a reality. And again, I hope and trust that, that God, God speaks to us and gives this, just helps it sink in to me so often at the very first me- meeting when, when we meet and we talk about sexual purity and just an aside there, often because of kind of our like purity culture of just, oh, don't do it. Just, you know, don't do it. It's bad. Um, don't, don't have premarital sex. Just wait. And then one day you can. And it's all, and we don't really connect the dots. And there's, it, we, so it's not all on the individuals. There's just this, this kind of general idea that's, oh, it's kind of, stay away from it and then you'll get married and you'll fi- figure it out. And, and so part of that is on us parents. It's on, it's on the church. It's, um, but, but often what happens is people will just give answers that what makes sense, right? Oh, that sounds archaic and old, like to wait for, you know, rings in a ceremony and, you know, a service and it's, tuxedos and dresses and stuff like we're we're already committed to each other we knew that we were going to be married from the first time we laid eyes on each other right it it was it was you know it's so we just we decided you know yeah we're having sex together and we you know we're we're cool with that and uh as we press in 
thankfully, there's our story, our word never has to be the last word or the end of the story. So if that's your story in here, I, I hope you, that God kind of strikes you to the heart with this, but also that you're encouraged that he can always redeem and restore and make new what we've ma- messed up. That's another massive part of what we're looking at this morning. But, but as, thankfully, as we press in and, and connect the dots, most, I think almost every time, God works, he heals, people are, are, are broken, like David in verse 10 there. They see, wow, I have, I have turned away from God. We've just taken, taken matters into our own hands. But that's one of many examples, right? It could be how we handle our finances, how we treat our employees, how we relate with our neighbors. There's so many things that we, we operate as though, I'm going to continue to do what I want to do until it makes sense. And then if it makes enough sense, I'll, I'll go this way and I'll, I'll justify it. I'll, I'll kind of say, oh, it's, it's old and archaic until, until, I, until it makes sense to me. And, and, and that's a dangerous and, and, and painful path to be on. So the, the big answer here is, why is it wrong? Because God said so. I think that's the best, that's the most weighty and important thing for us as a church to really sit in. Is again, to, to wrestle with that question, where in my life do I treat God as an advisor and not the king? Not God. So now specifically, back in the story here, why is it wrong? Well, it's definitely connected, but the, the short answer to it is because numbers, I, in this day, numbers were directly connected to security and to, and to future and to hope. And so in this day, that's what, that's what militaries did. And I, that, that certainly could happen in our day too, right? Our bank accounts, our, our numbers at church, whatever this is, we could use our numbers and base it. Oh, things are going well. We're good. We're confident. Oh, I'll, I'll give. I'll be generous. I'll, because I'm, I, I looked at the bank account. Everything's good. I checked the stock market. Everything's good there. So yeah, I can do that now. And, or, oh, I checked and things aren't so good right now. Well, the, the, the more practical, pragmatic thing to do is kind of to, to wait. And so we still can operate that way out of numbers. Well, in this day, military numbers were, were everything. And so what you would do is you would know how many warriors you had, and then you would, you would take stock of whatever group of people was about to attack you or you were about to attack, and then you would decide on your plans from there. Well, God had said, no, I want you to be different. Set apart from all the other people. That's, that's actually what that word holy means, is set apart. I want you to be a holy people, a set apart people. I want you to not base your decisions and your plans for your future off of taking stock of how many warriors you have, but I want you to trust me. I've provided for you, and I'll continue to provide for you. Trust in me. In fact, God had made a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, which I, m- multiple times throughout this series we've referred to this passage. It's one of those, if you underline it, circle it, this informs a lot of the Bible. A lot of the Bible before this passage and a lot of the Bible after this passage is informed by this verse where God's making a promise to David and he says, 
Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, if you've followed the story for a while here, right? David, his kids are killing each other. They're trying to kill him. He's hiding out. He's fleeing. All this stuff. And, and he's getting old. And he looked over his neighbor's fence and saw, wow, they're, they've got a, some things you know, stockpiled. Their portfolio looks a little bit better than mine. Maybe, maybe I, I can't, I, I, I look over my other neighbor's fence here and, and their front yard and uh, I don't know, things don't look so good right now. Maybe, I don't know, is that really going to happen? I mean, God said so, but is he really trustworthy? Maybe I need to, maybe I need to just make a backup plan so he counts and keeps track of his numbers. And, and it's wrong. Again, it's wrong because, because God said it was, and then very specifically because God said, um, I don't want your identity and your security to be in anything other than me. Okay, amen. Not because God's arrogant and not because he's so worried, because he knows that's the only safe place to be. There, there's a, another passage, I actually skipped past it. If you can go back a slide or two, in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. In him and him alone is where he wants our security and our hope to be found. Because he knows that's the only secure place that it can be found. And so then... Why this, why this response, right? What we, what we read, why then what comes from this? Okay, it's wrong because God said so. And it's wrong specifically because David at the end is tempted to find his security elsewhere. But then why does this next part happen? Look, um, in, well, actually in verse 11 through 13, which part of what Christina Read. I'll just explain it for us. Basically, God says, okay, you're going to get a consequence. Basically, go out and choose your switch. All right, some of us, you're young enough that you don't know what that even means. You've never grown up in that. I lived in Arkansas, part of my childhood growing up. I know all about this. Um, no, sorry, this is an aside. I, uh, no lie, within two weeks of moving from San Diego to Arkansas, I got paddled. At school, a public school, and my mom, true to character, they called and were like, I'm sure they saw, you know, San Diego as the address. They're like, who knows what they're allowed to do out there. I'll call and double check. And they asked, yeah, your, your son got in a fight. Uh, can we paddle him? And uh, my mom's like, I don't know, is a, a other kid getting paddled? Yep. Okay, sure, go ahead. And so, <laughs> so sure enough, I got paddled. Anyway, that is, uh, come back to it. So... So God gives this option. It's an impossible situation, all right, where David is, um, I don't know if I have to say this, I'm not condoning abuse or public, you know, teachers, whatever. I was the one getting spanked, by the way. But um, so anyway, if I need to say that, just want to throw it out there. But why does God here um, tell, tell David, you, you have to choose here? The, the most honest answer is, I don't fully understand. All right, I don't know. I know that 
part of it is, is the consequences directly connected to the offense. David is looking for security in numbers, and so God is going to dwindle the numbers. And um, what happens here, there are three choices. You get three years of famine, three months where you're pursued by enemies, or three days of p- pestilence. And most scholars believe that, I think this is interesting, that any one of those things would have likely resulted in the same number of people um, being dwindled. But David's response, look at his response. He, He says in verse 14, he said, I am in great distress. Let us fall in to the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Right? He's learned not to trust people. And so even here he knows it's not going to be cheap grace. He's not just going to get a you know, slap on the wrist and move on here. Um, again, the, the picture is God is awesome. He's great. He's powerful. But David, even in this moment of distress, knows that God's mercy is where his best hope can be found. And so, um, in fact, in a psalm that he wrote, Psalm chapter 40, verse 11, David says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And David, it, at some point, goes on here and says, God, can I, can I substitute myself for the people? In verse 17, he sees the effect that like 70,000 people die. And this time, right, we've seen throughout, David's decisions have resulted in thousands and thousands of people suffering. And in this moment, David says, God, not them but me. Let, let me take their place. But here's the problem. David's not a worthy substitute. He, he can't. He's, and now, let me also acknowledge, just part of the story to connect the dots here, the people de- not only wanted but demanded from God a representative government. They said, way back in the, when I was on sabbatical and we opened this whole series and we looked at Saul, the life of Saul, the life of David, and we're about to look at the life of Solomon, these three kings of Israel over God's, God's people. At the very beginning, they said, we don't want judges who represent God. We don't want God to be our king. We want a king like all the other people that we can kind of look up to who, who, who re- represents us. We want to demote God from being king. We want someone else to be king. And the way that that works is when the king is good and faithful, the people are blessed. When the king is disobedient, the people suffer the consequences. And we've seen that all throughout this story, and that's what happens here again. And it's messy and broken and and, and, it's, and it's confusing. And I just want to acknowledge it's, there's a tension there. But as I close, why is this happening? There's a, a, a subtle thread where we see that God is working. He's working through it all. In verse 18, it says, And Gad 
came that day to David, that's uh, the prophet, he said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. So he tells David, go, go and, go and b- b- buy this land and offer a sacrifice there. And David pays for it and, and he buys this land, right? He doesn't know, he's just, in this case, he's obeying. But God often sees what you and I don't, don't see. Church, when we're tempted to demote God to the role of advisor, remember, he sees what we don't see. He, he sees the full picture. He's at work. Right? David doesn't know that when he buys this, I'll just let me read this last verse in 25. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. David likely didn't know that almost 800 years before he bought this land from someone. Okay, uh, Arunah. He he bought this land that was a, it was like an agricultural land. It was used for threshing floor for separating wheat from 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 chaff. It was up on a high place because practically, pragmatically, when the wind blew, it would separate the chaff. It would hurry up the process, right? And so again, we see these practical reasons. Well, guess what? On this exact same spot, almost 800 years before, it's though it would soon be called Mount Zion, it was once called Mount Moriah, where Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, was called to go up and offer a sacrifice. And he went up there and he learned that that sacrifice, he was called to offer up his own son. God was, again, bringing up a faithfulness. Are you faithful? Are you going to trust because I said so? Are you going to obey me even when it doesn't make sense? And so Abraham is about to sacrifice his own son, which God forbids all throughout Scripture. He's about to sacrifice his own son, but God provides a substitute, a ram. And so Abraham offers this sacrifice, and God calls him faithful, and God says, I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to bless the earth through you. Almost 800 years later, that's like three times the age of our country, (laughs) all right? That's a long time ago. And so here, though, God is continuing to work. And and then the first words of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, start out this way. About a thousand years after what David just did. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus would come from this line. And unlike David, Jesus is a worthy sacrifice. That David's son Solomon would build a temple on this very spot that David just bought. He'd build that temple and God's people would offer sacrifices year after year, but they wouldn't be sufficient. They wouldn't be full and final. But Jesus would come, God the Son, the King, would come and humble himself on behalf of the people. He would live perfectly and show the way life is meant to be lived in obedience to God, not as an advisor, but as king, as authority, all the way to the point of death. And this time, unlike David, Jesus is a worthy sacrifice. He says, God, not them, but me. 
He says, Father, I know there, there are enemies. I know they've committed treason. I know they have wandered against me. They don't even know what they're doing. Bring this consequence. Bring this iniquity upon me. And so Jesus, as a worthy sacrifice, dies for you and for me, for our disobedience. And then powerfully ushering in a new way of life, God raises him from the dead and Jesus ushers in a new life where you and I can thrive and flourish under the authority, the kingship, the headship, the power of God. So again, church, I want to ask you, where are you and I tempted to continue to operate as though God is an advisor? He's calling us to respond in faithful surrender because under him and him alone is where true life is found. Let's pray. Again, Lord, thank you that you are good, you're powerful. You've shown your goodness because you died for us. You've shown your power because you raised from the dead. Again, Lord, as we started our time together, we prayed, Lord, whoever needs to be encouraged, encourage. Whoever needs to be convicted, convict. Probably for most of us, we need some of both. Either way, Lord, through your spirit now, will you turn our eyes to you and lead us to respond in faith and surrender and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.